Um, if you'd open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, it was interesting as I went through this text, knowing Jay was going to share, I'm like, oh man, there's a lot of uh, things that uh, we could certainly tie in together. Um, and so open again to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 27 through 39. And um, before we do that, though, let's pray. Father, um, I recognize every morning, every Sunday morning that we gather, um, there's some deep convictions I have, and one is that you're here. That makes all the difference. That's why we're here, to worship you. Lord, we want to hear you. We desperately need to hear you. If we're going to align our life with what your purposes are, God, if we're going to live a life for the praise of your name, God, we, we need to know how to do that. We need your spirit to take your word and change us. We have so many opinions and so many attitudes and, and strongholds in our mind, God, that we need your spirit to tear down, to change, to transform to conform. Lord, we're so dependent upon your spirit to do that and, and your word. And so we invite you to have your way. Teach us, change us for your glory and for your purposes. We praise in your name, Jesus. Amen. I, uh, when I came to Christ, when I was a sophomore in college, um, my life... Um, before that, I was very empty. Um, I had no purpose, and, and I knew it. I mean, there was a part of me that, that, that vacuum inside that had become incredibly frustrated with the fact that somehow I knew God was involved in this, but I couldn't put it together. And my life coming up to then was, in a sense, trying to fill that void or trying to uh, find that purpose, and, and I couldn't do it. A sports wasn't cutting it. Well, I loved sports and enjoyed it. Uh, when the final uh, second ticked off the clock, I was still frustrated and empty and lost. So when I get to college, I'm like, well, I'm going to try this, what, what apparently every college student is supposed to do. Is I'm, I'm going to get in the college scene, and, and I'm going to join this fraternity. And the particular fraternity I joined was their idea um, of a really good time was, you know, let's have a kegger on the weekend. And so, especially my freshman year, was about the frat. It was about the keg parties. It was, it was about trying to belong to a group, and then maybe somehow in that belonging would come out of it that sense of fulfillment. And so my freshman year took, with football, a big party scene involvement in that. And so when I came to Jesus Christ my sophomore year, and came to faith in him, some things became very clear, and it's only the Holy Spirit that could have done that. I said, Matt, there's some things that need to change in your life that, that Jesus isn't pleased with. The one you now call Lord, um, you are to live for him, and there's some things in your life, Matt. One was my language. God cleaned that up really quick. I can take no credit for that. The other thing was a recognition that you know, to, to go get drunk and all this things, and the drunkenness factor wasn't really a good witness. It, it wasn't really a good representation of my Lord, and that became evident right away. I didn't even know what the Bible said about drunkenness. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I just knew from the Holy Spirit, this is compatible 
with this new decision you made. But it created a dilemma for me as a Christian because a lot of my friends were part of that fraternity. And so for me to leave mentally, to leave that lifestyle, faced a tension of now do I leave these friends? And, and, and how do I do that? And maybe you face that as a Christian. How do you live for Jesus and be separate from the world system, but also engage those in a loving way who are maybe involved in things that you're deeply convinced you shouldn't be involved with? How, how do you do that? I think that's an important question. It can be a difficult one. And I think if we were honest as a Christian, there's kind of a, a magnetic pull to say, once I come to Christ, I'm going to be involved with Christian groups. I'm going to go to a Christian hairdresser. I'm going to go to a Christian dentist. I'm going to go to a Christian doctor. I'm going to be part of Christian groups. And so we become isolated and kind of in a Christian bubble. And you know what? That's safe. Right? You feel like, good, now, now I can follow Jesus. I got my whole life ordered. I got all the, everything in place that's going to keep me following Jesus. And that's an understandable mindset, except now we come to the scriptures and Jesus shows us something different. We're like, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what I thought I was supposed to do. And so I'm going to let Jesus' example challenge us, because it does. And so let's follow the Son of God as he walked this earth. Verse 27, after this, we're not sure how long this is, but it's after that. He, being Jesus, went out and he saw a tax collector. The word saw means give careful attention to. So it's not like a random thing crosses his head. He gave careful attention to a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." There's a surprising discovery we make here. Now Luke doesn't hesitate in his gospel to show Jesus went where no respectable rabbi would have gone. And Luke's free to share that. He doesn't hesitate to do that. But I asked the question, I like to ask questions of text. One is, why was Jesus with this group? What, I mean, he was clearly not hesitant to involve himself with this group of people. Why? Why was he involved with this group that was considered dirty, immoral, and even hated? Jesus seemed to have no inhibitions to spend time with this group. Why? Well, let's look a little bit about this group. One, there's a guy named Levi we're told about. He's also known as Matthew. And there's several reasons for that. I'm not going to go into right now. And so when I say Levi, I think Matthew. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew references a tax collector named Matthew in exactly the same scenario. And there's a reason, uh, again, more reasons for that. But when I say Levi and I say Matthew, it's the same dude. Okay. Now, we know from the text that he's a tax collector. 
Now, nobody here likes the IRS, okay? Right, none of us are going to say, I'm inviting them to my party. No, we, we don't want the IRS. They didn't like tax collectors, not even a little. And there's a reason for it. As a tax collector, he would be considered a traitor for his living because he took money on behalf of Rome. And so he'd collect taxes on behalf of Rome. Let's say it was $100. He'd come to you and say, you owe me $150. Give $100 to Rome, and he'd pocket the $50. Everybody knew these tax collectors did it, and they hated them for it. They saw how they were living wealthy and all the money they had, and they're like, that's my money that they're stealing. There's nothing they could do about it because tax collectors came on behalf of Rome. And so they had to pay these tax collectors. Matthew is a tax collector. Now, since Capernaum was the largest city on the lake and crossroads from east to west, you can bet there was some money there, and Matthew had a flourishing business. But tax collectors were dregs of society. William Barclay tells us robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were classed together. A tax collector was barred from the synagogue. The Talmud uses tax collector, and they were calls them mokes. Now, there were two types of mokes, the great mokes and the little mokes. Okay? And I'm going somewhere. Hang on to this. Okay? The little mokes would be employed by the great mokes. So the great mokes never really collected any taxes. They just sent the little mokes to towns and cities and villages, and these little mokes would set up a booth where they collect taxes. Matthew is a little moke. That's why he's in a booth. And so that's who we're talking about right here. And again, they were these little mokes were one of the most hated people. And Matthew would have been one of the most hated people in Capernaum. So understand there's a reason why there's great resistance to Jesus being at this guy's house. Now, to follow Jesus, Matthew, if we look at the text, I mean, he said to him, follow me. He leaves everything, just like Peter and the disciples we read about earlier. He left everything. He rose and followed him. Think about that. For him to leave and follow Jesus would be trading a business gold mine for an uncertain life on the road. Would you have done that? Now, we're not sure all he knew about Matthew. I'm sure he heard some of the teaching, probably saw some of the healing, or certainly got firsthand witness or evidence of it. But the change in his life is absolutely miraculous. The proud, this one-time proud, ruthless Moke becomes a humble man, a humble follower of Jesus. What we do know is that his heart changed, and it caused him to grab his coat, leave the office, lock it behind him, and never turn back. He left everything to follow Jesus. He left the old, and there was a new way of life. Life filled with adventure, change, all the things he didn't even know what that was about. Now verse 29 tells us, Levi made a great feast in his house. The reason it was a great feast is he probably had a great big house as a tax collector, so he could invite a lot of people. And so he invites Jesus to this party, and I think this is a great idea. I mean, he leaves everything, follows Jesus, probably hears he's the Messiah, and he thought, you know what? This is incredible. I'm going to invite others to come here and see Jesus. Not a bad witnessing example right here. Um, maybe more Matthews uh, should be around. And, and I'm sure, as you look at the text, there are other tax collectors there. 
because there was a large company of tax collectors, we're told, and others reclining at the table. Now, when we read others, Luke kind of tactfully adds others. Matthew's account doesn't hold back. He said there's just other sinners there. <laughs> I mean, tax collectors and sinners, which is pretty broad. But Matthew's speaking, I think, from the context of the perception from the Pharisees and religious people is this party Jesus had, it's just loaded with sinners. I mean, that's pretty much all that's there. And then Jesus, how dare he go to such a party? How dare he do that? Now, verse 30, peeking through the doors, the Pharisees, the scribes, they grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you do that? They're grumbling. I, I chuckle when I <laughs> read the Greek word uh, for grumbling. It's gaguzo, and it doesn't sound like grunt, complaining, right? I mean, what's that person doing? He's gaguzing. It, it sounds like he's complaining. Um, but I wonder if you've ever gaguzoed. Think about it. You, you walk by and you see someone light up a cigarette, and you're like, oh, man, smoke, blow the smoke in a restaurant maybe? You gaguzo. You complain. Maybe you drive by a nightclub, there's people loitering outside, and, and they're loud, and, and maybe some are a little more expressive physically than you think, or they should be. Or maybe the thing I fight is, you know, guys wearing jeans that fall down. Oh, that drives me crazy. But gaguzo. They complain about unrighteous people acting unrighteous. Gaguzo, that's the word. It's not really an issue, really, of our convictions. That's not the issue we're talking about here. The challenge to you and I is what's our attitude towards people who seem rough? Who seem, well, they're sinners. Well, that's who Jesus seemed to hang out with. And I don't know, it just seemed like sinners felt welcome in his presence and, and he felt comfortable with them. This is a hard thing to grasp sometimes. And, and there's decisions we make, I think as a Christian, which are important in this way. When I was single, I was a believer. I'd been a believer for years, and I worked as a, super, um, a supervisor at a plant. And I, so I worked with a lot of people, and just good people, nice people. I just enjoyed them. And, and some were very rough around the edges, but we got along fine. And uh, one Christmas... There was a big Christmas party that was being held. It was held at this kind of this bar banquet thing, hall, and, and all the, my, a lot of my coworkers are talking about, oh, this is going to be great, and chance to go get sloshed, and, 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 and they were just talking it up. This is what's going to happen at this Christmas party. And Matt, you going? Now I'm hearing the description of what's going to be taking place here. I'm like, this, this just isn't going to be a real fun atmosphere. And, and, and I had a couple people ask me, and I, and I really had to think about it. I really prayed about it. I thought, oh, should I go to this thing or not? And I decided to go. And so I went there, and, and my conviction is, in my life um, is to stay away from alcohol. And so I just got a Pepsi, didn't rub it in their faces. I just ordered a Pepsi, and there are a lot of people around here just hammering shots and beer. I just <laughs> drank my Pepsi and, uh, and just enjoyed being with them, and, and sure, they, a lot of them were getting sloshed and stuff, and I got, you know, I got asked to dance, and as I always tell my kids, if you go to a dance, Emily, what do you do? You dance, right? That's what you do at a dance, so I danced, and, uh, and I had a pretty good time, but I noticed something happened post-Christmas party. 
people start to open up a little more with me. And it, I think it was just simply because they didn't think I judged them. And then I actually thought it was okay to hang out with them. Um, that I didn't look down on them. And that maybe there was a perception of me before that that maybe I did. I don't know. Um, I do know Jesus models for us. It's okay to affirm to sinners that they're valuable without affirming their behavior. The Pharisees seemed to make everybody uncomfortable because the Pharisees had said, you know what, you need to clean up first before you can come to God. Jesus came and said, hey, come, I'll clean you up. Jesus came with a whole different opposite avenue of relating to those who were called sinners, those outside of Christ, those who, uh, who didn't seem to live the way the, they felt uh, the law caused them to live. And overhearing their grumbling, Jesus answers their accusations. Jesus' words almost seem tongue-in-cheek. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, they need a physician. And to me, it's kind of the way I read that. And uh, the Pharisees felt they were the healthy ones in this little line Jesus used. But Jesus is saying, I didn't come for those who think they're righteous. I came for those who are sick and recognize they need help. So back to my question. Why does Jesus spend time with these sinners? Because he could help them. He had an answer for them. And so... Instead of them trying to figure out what the answer is by piecing together all the things he said, he spent time with them, loved them, and in turn they listened because he could help them. That's why he hung out with sinners. In Matthew's gospel, he adds something to this uh, dialogue. Jesus then quotes scripture out of Hosea and says, I desire mercy, not just sacrifice. Don't just come offer sacrifices and, and kind of uh, depend on your traditions and all those things. Man, show some mercy. God's got a merciful heart. And we model his heart when we show mercy to people in grace. Well, a vigorous defense comes, verse 33 through 39. They said to him, the disciples of John, they fasted often. They offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours... They eat and drink, i.e., that's horrible. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while a bridegroom is with them? Now, attached to their criticism was a tradition of fasting that defined their version of spirituality. Every Monday and Thursday, from sunrise to sunset, they would sanctimoniously deny themselves food, and they would intentionally even make their faces look haggard. The interesting thing is that and they would tell people, hey, listen, if you want to be spiritual, you should be fasting with us. There's only one mandated fast for the Jewish people, and that was the Day of Atonement. I mean, God never expected them to fast Monday and Thursday. But the Pharisees, religious people, they added that on. And they added that level to spirituality. If you want to be spiritual, you need to add these fasts to your day. And Jesus wasn't against fasting, obviously, because we see some uh, encouragement and affirmation towards it. But what he was opposed to was hypocrisy. And any tradition that became set in concrete, and when tradition gets set in concrete, 
it hardens into traditionalism. Ken Geyer has great words on this. He says, by traditionalism, it could be meant an attitude that resists change, adaptation, or alteration. Clutches tradition so tightly that the blood supply to our spiritual brain is cut off, distorting vision and blurring the distinction between custom and commandment. Traditionalism is suspicious and censorious of the new, the innovative, the different. And I think what he's saying is traditionalism is about performing. It's about performance. But Jesus asks a great question here. He says, can you make the wedding guests fast while a bridegroom is with them? I mean, the question is, what do you do at a wedding? You celebrate. I'm pretty confident that Kelvin wasn't washing dishes yesterday at his daughter's wedding. Because it was a day to celebrate. You don't do dishes when you're at a wedding. You celebrate. Just Jesus saying, it's a time to celebrate. And so one of the questions that came to my mind is, you know what, that really is a pretty good picture and pretty good choice as a Christian we face. Are we going to perform or are we going to celebrate? Are we going to perform, in a sense, your traditionalism or are we going to celebrate the gospel and celebrate the grace that's been poured out on us? So let me ask you, are you a performer or are you a celebrator? When you fail, is your first instinct to perform? Or is it to go to Christ and receive forgiveness and celebrate grace? What's your first step? Probably a pretty good indication of where you stand in that. Verse 35, though, sounds kind of ominous. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. I mean, there's a time to celebrate, but there's also coming a day when it will be fitting to fast because the bridegroom won't be present or there won't be the fullness of the bridegroom's presence. And isn't that the tension as a Christian? We celebrate all that God has done and is doing, but there's a, a discontent that we're not experiencing all there is going to be, right? We celebrate what God is doing, but we long for that day that will be with him for eternity, that will experience the fullness of his presence and his grace. That's the tension. And there isn't a discontent because we have so little. There's a discontent. There's, there's so much more. And so we celebrate as a Christian all that God has and does, and we should. But I hope there's a, a holy discontent for that day that there's so much more. Like the psalmist said, he says, one thing I ask One thing I seek, God, is that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That I might gaze upon your beauty forever. There was a longing. And so we celebrate while we long. And there's kind of, in a sense, that tension. Jesus then talks about a parable. He said to them, verse 36, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And he, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. It will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Now anyone who grew up with unshrunken jeans and 100% cotton shirts, you're going to get this. 
You're going to decipher this really quick. You see, if you had a patch, an old shrunken garment, if you put a new patch on a shrunken garment, there's problems because a new patch, when you wash, it's going to shrink. So now you're going to ruin both. And, and so they're incompatible in that sense. And they'll pull away from the garment. And by the way, a new patch doesn't match old jeans, I know. Mom was big into patches. Now I find out today when I see the way they wear jeans, with like rips and everything, I thought the only patch for them is just a new pair of jeans. You know, um, a little different uh, examples you look at it in today's uh, dress culture. Um, but the, the point was the old garments of traditionalism, the ritualistic, the legalistic religion based on tr- rabbi's traditions with its man-made regulations, their attempt to interpret God's law, the Pharisees added over 600 wrinkles. That patch was incompatible. Those garments were incompatible with the new of what God was doing. And to add even more emphasis, Jesus used the metaphor from, from the festive party. If you take freshly made wine, wine skins back then were made out of animal hides. And so if you took new wine, poured it in an old wine skin, the chemical reaction and the fermentation process would release gases and it would actually blow it up like a balloon until it burst. Then you ruin the wine skin and there's wine all over. And so that's not a good idea. What's Jesus talking about? Is that the old tradition of Judaism was too weak and brittle for God to put his new wine into. The Lord's point is that the gospel cannot be patched into Judaism. God had a new era of grace coming. And the Pharisees' list of all the do's and don'ts was incompatible with this gospel of grace. This new wine, which Jesus had, was incompatible. If Christianity, I thought about this, cannot be mixed with the close cousin called Judaism, then certainly it cannot be mixed with anything else available in the world's cafeteria of religions. To do so will be destroy both. Think in terms of when you think of the old patch, or, I say, or the old garment, and the old wineskin, think in terms of man-made effort towards God. Man-made religion. Traditionalism. It's incompatible with the gospel. This new wine, the good news, the new era of God's grace, but so attached were the Jews to the wineskins of their traditions that they actually preferred their stiff, empty wineskin to the full, festive truth of the gospel. You see, there was a party going on, and they missed it. They missed it. They missed it because of their perception that Jesus shouldn't hang out with sinners, and they missed it because of the perception that all their lists and do's and don'ts would make them right with God. They didn't see Jesus, and they didn't see Jesus' plan, and they didn't see his grace, which brings us to some stretching challenges for sure. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Christ because you've placed your faith in the gospel. You've left it all and said, there's nothing I can do to earn salvation. Jesus, you did it all. And I trust you. And you became a follower of Jesus Christ. One of the key aspects of discipleship that we often don't teach, but we should, and these passages bring us back to it, is that if you're going to follow Jesus, following Jesus means you're going to follow him into places where sinners are. 
where people whose society deems is unclean, is beyond hope, as people that maybe you should just stay away from and walk on the other side of the street from. That's where Jesus will lead you to if you follow him. So here are some two applications I think are important. One, try moving closer to the unsaved. And to me, here's a key link of discipleship. Jesus and his followers pursue relationships of grace with non-Christians so as to call them to repentance in life. Jesus and his followers pursue relationships of grace with non-Christians so as to call them to repentance in life. Take some interest in their lives. Meet them on their turf. Enter their world. Yes, hold to God-given truth, God-given standards, and God-given convictions. Don't throw them out the window. But don't rub them in people's face either. Show you love them. Take an interest in their life. It might take deliberate effort to connect with neighbors or old friends. But make friendly connections that build relationships with those who don't know Jesus. Be deliberate. Be intentional. Again, stepping outside the Christian bubble can be scary, but remember, Christ is there. That makes all the difference. And number two, try new ways of reaching and winning the lost. New ways. Maybe it's just not the four spiritual laws. Maybe there's another way, a new way, a different way to reach those who are lost. Not only personally, but corporately as a church. We need to help outsiders see and come in contact with the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul to the church of Ephesians talks about the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and he says, hey, before you get such a high head, remember such as some were you. Don't forget what you've been saved from. When you remember that, makes it a little easier to connect with those who are still not at that point. How can you connect? Is there some new ways? I'm grateful our elders are very concerned we do this better as a church. That we love our community well. That we're an inviting church. That they don't feel judged, but they feel loved. And they feel like that church is holding out a message that, that I need to hear. That I want to be like what I see there. And so there might be some new Ways of reaching and winning lost people. Not just those who look like they're all cleaned up, but those who are considered the worst of sinners by our society. That's where Jesus hung out. I think that's where I want to hang out and help people come to faith in Christ. As I said, it doesn't mean we're careless. It doesn't mean we put ourselves in tempting situations which we're sure to fail, probably. But it does mean we're intentional and deliberate in meeting people on their turf, in their ways. There's specific ways to do that which are helpful. Maybe with Thanksgiving coming, you know somebody who's single or alone, or maybe a couple that, on church, seem kind of rough around the edges. Why, why not invite them to your Thanksgiving dinner? Why not? I mean, why not take the single mom and their child, take them Christmas shopping with you? Do something that they would probably do anyways and do it with them. It's non-threatening. You're meeting them on their turf. It's pretty, uh, they probably don't feel too awkward in it. I mean, look for ways to do it with people right next door to you or people you work with. Great opportunities. 
Soften up your wineskins for the sparkling, flowing new wine of Christ in the gospel. That's what I'm encouraging us to do. Let's follow him who leads us to others who need to see and experience the great love and mercy of God which he's lavished upon us. Let's invite others to the party. Let's pray. Lord, so easy to talk about. And I recognize, even when I went through this passage, that there are some in this room, maybe many, who are familiar with this passage. And I knew that there would be a temptation to check out. And maybe even a temptation to say, great, now I've got to add something else to my list of twos. And Lord, if that's, if that's been the mindset, tear that down, God. You lived life perfectly. And so we know that there's no better model than you. And you show us, God, that you cared about unsaved people. You cared about those who were perceived as great sinners beyond hope. And I thank you for that model because I don't often get it right. Maybe I'm not alone. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us and guide us this week to be able to see people the way you see them. Move us beyond our comfort zone when that's necessary. Give us words that would affirm people's worth. Give us words to speak the gospel in ways, Lord, which connect with people. Give us creativity. Give us love. Your love. So God, people could see you. Your kingdom would grow. And you would be pleased. I pray this in Jesus' name.